I get bored easily when driving. My attention span is short, and my mind wanders, and I can get enthralled by so many shining and interesting things as I travel through this world. For this reason, I prefer to drive a stick shift. It requires just enough more attention and mental engagement to keep me more focused. The extra few steps and mental exercise of determining when it's time to shift gears makes driving a little more fun for me. Knowing this, you can imagine my horror when I read the following news story in 2010. The internet giant Google had just announced that they were testing driverless cars. They called them car bots made out of Toyota Priuses, and they steer, stop, and start all on their own. Apparently, with the help of radar, lasers, and video cameras, and software that knows speed limits, traffic patterns, and road maps, statistically, these cars were safer than those completely controlled by your average driver. Google engineers argue this is because the computers can react more quickly than humans. After 140,000 miles of testing on busy and windy and windy California roads, there had been only one accident, and it had been the other driver's fault, the human driver. Now, as we know, software isn't foolproof. So these vehicles also allow for the human driver to take over if necessary. So as someone who has trouble staying focused on the road when driving an automatic car, this is the part that gets me and scares me a bit. If I'm checking my email or reading the news on my tablet or texting on my phone or otherwise making use of my driving time as many suggest that drivers will be able to do with this new technology, would I actually pay any attention enough to be able to intervene if necessary? I highly doubt it. I would find it far too easy to take the car for granted and just assume that it was always going to do the right thing and take me on the right route. I'm also the kind of person who wholeheartedly trusts my GPS. So much so that I find it odd when my partner second guesses it and decides to take another route to our destination. If I didn't know myself better, I might think from this fact that I am a follower. I know most of you know me well enough to know that's not who I am. But I do question how it seems that in some areas, we so easily give up such control while we grasp desperately for it in others. And I wonder how we decide when to lead and when to follow. In her blog, The Dancing Bug, swing dance lover Candace Kay writes of an experience she shared with a friend who, like her, knew how to both lead and follow. While generally in partner dancing like swing, 
it's important to be clear about who leads and who follows, and you learn differently based on your primary role, many aficionados learn both roles in order to improve their abilities within their primary role. A lead who understands how to follow can be more responsive to the body language of their partner and change the way they lead accordingly. And a follow who understands how to lead can sense more easily what is to come and be more effortlessly graceful and creative within their role. And if both partners learn both roles, there are times in which they can switch intentionally and many techniques in which they can do this wordlessly. So when these two switch hitters, so to speak, began dancing together and switching back and forth intentionally, experimenting with all of the ways in which people have developed over the history of swing dancing to allow partners to switch roles, something strange happened. Candace writes, So at this point during the song, he looks at me and goes, Wait, am I leading? Both of us crack up, and I'm like, I have no idea. What was so great about it is that we didn't even stop dancing for a second. We just kept going along, totally connected, totally feeling the music, and neither of us had any idea or really cared at that point who was leading and who was following. We were just dancing. What a concept. To me, this is the ultimate point of learning to dance the, ultimate role, the opposite role. You finally get to where it doesn't really make much difference who's leading and who's following. You're just connected to your partner and the music in one big cooperative project. I think you only get to this kind of situation when you've got a lead who's open to listening to their follow so open to listening that they can switch instantly into response mode when the follow initiates something. And you have to have a follow who's willing to not only feel and act on their own musical impulses, but actually take responsibility for communicating them clearly to their partner. True partnerships just work this way. One of you has to take the lead sometimes. And switching between leading and following begins to appear effortless or not appear at all with partners who have gotten the dance down. Sometimes you may make conscious choices about who leads in what areas, but for most of the important decisions in your lives that you make with your spouse or business partner or anyone else with whom you share equal responsibility, you have to find a balance between leading and following. You might not even realize when you are doing it. As my partner and I have been learning how to dance together and are still early in that process, there have been more than a few times we've stepped on each other's toes. We both tend to like to lead in literal and metaphoric dancing, actually. Add to that the fact that as lifelong Unitarian Universalists, we both often question and sometimes buck authority. And there have been a few moments 
where we have been less than gracious about allowing each other to lead. And over time, as we've come to know each other's strengths and trust each other's judgment, we've been more and more able to let go and just enjoy following sometimes. But it's been something of an uphill battle sometimes as well. Management consultant and writer Margaret Wheatley challenged our cultural understanding of what leadership means in her revolutionary book, Leadership and the New Science. She argued that our modern Western culture teaches us to revere individualism over relationship, to foster competition as a means of motivation, and to see structures and systems in a mechanistic way. She explains that in a world that seems full of chaos, our way has been to attempt to impose order through organizational systems rather than understanding the chaos and messiness of human life. Furthermore, she uses scientific discovery to debunk the myth of chaos, to say that what appears chaotic is actually a deeply ingrained order and structure that allows for greater diversity and flexibility. She writes, most human dynamics are completely ignored in corporate structures. Our need to trust one another, our need for meaningful work, our desire to contribute to be, and to be thanked for that contribution, our need to participate in changes that affect us. She asserts that we must embrace our humanity and celebrate our diversity within corporate structures in order to become a part of the greater order that may appear chaotic. What is necessary for this kind of model is people who are self-referential, She writes, self-reference conjures up such different possibilities for how to be together. It explains how life creates order without control and stable identities that are open to change. It describes systems of relationships where both interdependence and individual autonomy are necessary conditions. It promises that individuals together reference a chosen, shared identity. There, a coherent system can emerge. It illuminates the necessity for meaning-making in a world that often seems meaningless. When we understand our own gifts and talents and even shortcomings and build relationships of trust and collaboration with others, we are far more effective than when we create a machine-like system that gives us one mundane part of the whole to complete over and over again. When we are bound together by our common purpose, we find new and innovative ways of journeying together toward that purpose. In her model, we honor the human need to create to relate to one another, to lead and follow 
and just plain dance with others. When we are able to understand ourselves within the context of a larger picture and find meaning in the lives that we are living, we are ultimately more productive and motivated. When we step up and serve that common purpose, not out of obligation but out of dedication, the work becomes energizing rather than draining. When we empower trusted leaders to grapple with hard decisions on our behalf and accept that their decisions were always made with the best interest of the whole in mind, we actually gain control and power. When we learn to follow and lead and sometimes just get lost in the dance, each step of the journey can seem so much more joyful when we allow our feet to be guided by something greater than ourselves and offer as much of ourselves to the journey as we can, we become something like great sages who understand that it's the last that shall be first and that our greatest achievements are not really our own, but those that we accomplish together. Won't you engage in your dance, in your life? Don't just let the car drive you until you think that the software is malfunctioning and you have to slam on the brakes. It's a give and take where we lead and we follow, find communities that share our goals and work together towards them. Allow yourself sometimes to be swept up in the higher order, the hidden order, the most beautiful order that is this life. Choose wisely when to grab hold and when to let go. Be intentional sometimes about when you lead and when you follow, but let it move effortlessly between you and others sometimes as well. Because at the end of the day, we might not be able to tell exactly who's driving from one moment to the next. But we will have gotten where we were trying to go. And we will have done it in such a way that we have come together as a people. And that is all that really matters. Amen.